And if we were funded better, we could have combated all of the horrible, incurable, devastating pathologies of aging, such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and type 2 diabetes, at once. Pretty much like penicillin combats bacterial infections. Human OS. Learn. Master. Achieve. Irene and Mike Comboy, thank you so much for joining HumanOS Radio. So you two are married and have been doing work together for many years. Tell me about your story and how you guys met and the type of work that you do together now. It's sure. a very romantic story, and we have recently celebrated our silver anniversary. Congratulations. I met Irina after graduating from college. I uh, was working in a lab uh, just as a technician, and I came into lab one day, and there was Irina sitting on my bench. In the next couple of years, we had long-distance dating, and then we got married. So a lot of the work that you guys have done has been in stem cells. And before we launch into that, for those who are unfamiliar, what are stem cells, and why are they so interesting? Yeah, so stem cells are cells which can make more of themselves and also make any tissue that we need. For example, in adults, there are stem cells in our brains which can make new neurons, And specifically, they can make new neurons in the part of the brain which is responsible for memory and learning. So, for example, if people want to learn a new language, for example, Greek, right now, in the beginning, it will be very, very difficult. But with time, it will be easier and easier as they practice. And there are many mechanisms, but one of them is that we start making new neurons, and the neurons connect with each other and therefore allow us to speak Greek. So, meanwhile, each cell does not just make a neuron, it also makes another stem cell. So, this process can continue for many, many decades. Mm. And so, pretty much the same happens in muscle and in bone and in skin and everywhere that we looked in every single organ in our bodies, we think that there is potential to repair and restructure the organ throughout our adult life. So those are adult stem cells. And there is, of course, embryonic stem cells, which is an entirely different thing. Right. Yeah. So in my conversation with Aubrey de Grey, he was optimistic of stem cells being one area in which we can affect aging itself. So if we have these stem cells that regenerate and then can become new tissue, what does happen with aging to stem cells? So what we believe and we found is that, interestingly, stem cells remain relatively young, even in a person who is like 80, 85 years old. Mm. So you are like a mosaic of cells. Many of your cells are old, decrepit, they have damaged DNA and short telomeres and whatnot. But stem cells are actually pretty healthy and young and functional, but they are inhibited. They are pretty much blocked by their surrounding tissue and it's called niche. So it's like they live in their little niche and that niche blocks them from performing any work and just tells them, you know what, just like keep sleeping and do not repair the tissue. And so then because of that, when there is tissue damage and stem cells are sleeping, they are not activated, then the damage is not regenerated. And instead you have fibrosis So it's like your plan B. So you now make fibrous tissue and kind of adipose fat tissue Mm. to replace the damage. And so then gradually with time, you just turn into this big scar and big fat blob. Well, that would certainly describe what's visible when somebody ages. They lose their muscle, they become less functional. And so that is a 
primary reason why that's happening. These stem cells, although they remain young, their surrounding environment gets in the way of them becoming healthy new muscle cells. Therefore, overall, the organism start to have less and less muscle, more and more fat and fibrous tissue. So it's, it's less functional. And it's not just in muscle, the same happens in liver, right? Mm. So there is liver fibrosis and liver adiposity or fat liver. And even in brain, right, we don't maybe necessarily have fibrous tissue in brain, but certainly we have less neurons and more kind of connective, supportive tissue in brain with age. Right. And so that is actually promising because the alternative, if we simply physically lost our stem cells, would be much worse mm -hmm. because cell transplantation really doesn't work. But since we still have them, maybe there is a little bit less of them by whatever, 10, 20%. But we still have enough of them that if we reawaken the cells which we have already, they just start making new young tissue. They are pretty much actually, interestingly, most of our adult or tissue stem cells are in this state of hibernation. So they're kind of sleeping all of the time. And they're waking up only when there is a signal from surrounding tissue to tell them that the tissue is damaged, you need to wake up, repair tissue, and then go back to sleep. Mm. And if you can imagine, you know, there was this sci-fi movies that if people sleep for a long time, they remain young, and meantime, you know, meanwhile, hundreds of years have passed, and they wake up. Right. So it's kind of similar, it's an analogy of the tissue stem cells. They sleep most of the time, and most likely because of that, they remain relatively young and capable of making new tissue. See. So then it's promising because then if you figure out FDA-approved ways to reawaken them, then 70-year-old, 80-year-old person will start regenerating all of the organs as if they are 20-year-old. Mm. And gradually, not only will prevent all of these bad diseases to happen, but perhaps start getting even younger. So the regeneration of all of our tissues, whether it's brain or muscle or liver or whatever, requires these stem cells to be woken up, turned into healthy new tissue. But what is it about getting older? What happens in that microenvironment of the stem cells that prevents the signals from waking them up? So basically, again, the best way I can present it is uh, for your audience is a metaphor or analogy. So if you imagine that there are a bunch of old bureaucrats working and they just don't want to be replaced by any new employees in the company. Okay. So they kind of put all of these things that they have learned over the years to prevent new hirings and prevent their own retirement. So that's a perfect analogy to what happens in our tissues because, you know, that we go through life and we are exposed to all kinds of stresses, UV rays from sun and oxidative, reactive oxidative species just simply from eating and we damage ourselves. But interestingly, those damaged cells, which we call differentiated cells, which cannot divide anymore, all they can do is just either perform their function or die. Mm. Interestingly, they produce chemicals in their environment which prevent stem cells from replacing them with the new tissue. See. So those chemicals help the differentiated cells that are damaged to survive. So they maintain their life. But at the same time, they inhibit stem cells from waking up and replacing damaged tissue with a new one. Mm. So it's like they are clinging on to the life for the bitter end. And then ultimately, when they cannot cling on anymore and big chunks of liver start dying, the whole organism then is compromised. Yeah. I guess I could have a different or slightly different uh, rewording of that. The bureaucrat asleep, asleep at their <laughs> <laughs> entrenched bureaucrat asleep at their desk. 
would be that the there's growth and then there's differentiation. And stem cells, when you're young, your stem cells are getting a lot of growth signals. Your whole body's getting a lot of growth signals. And the stem cells beget progenitor cells, which proliferate a lot. And there's relatively less differentiated cells and differentiation signals compared with later in life. When you lose the growth signals and uh, you're fully grown, fully mature, and all that remains, I guess, is the more of a differentiation signal environment. Mm. So then the cells perceive that, and that tends to tell stem cells to, again, stay asleep and not wake up and proliferate. There's also this phenomenon, I guess the term is inflammaging, yeah. so the inflammatory signals that, that increase with age. So the, the aging body in general has a lot more signals of uh, kind of persistent and chronic inflammation. And those tend to be pro-differentiative also. Mm. They, they, if I were to lump those molecules, those signals into a, are they on the growth side or the differentiation side? I'd put them on the differentiation side. Okay, so you've got a diminution of growth signals that happen naturally as we age. You've got then an increase in these inflammatory signals that prevent the stem cells from differentiating. And altogether, that leads to the loss of tissue function. So one publication that got a lot of attention is one where you did this parabiosis experiment where you had blood exchange from an old rat to a young rat. Tell us a little bit about that one. And then we could talk about the more recent one, which was not parabiosis, but had highly controlled blood exchange. Right, so in the first one, and Mike did most of the surgeries, if not all of the surgeries there, you simply staple skins of two mice together. So you kind of, if you imagine there are those sleeping bags that you can unzip and then zip together to make a bigger sleeping bag. So it's exactly like that. And then you wait for like a week or so for capillaries, small blood vessels to grow between the skin. And then blood starts to exchange or flow between two animals. And it's, of course, like kind of very rudimentary and not very precisely controlled experiment because different animals might have different amount of capillaries growing through them and therefore the blood exchange could be different between pairs. And then you wait a month or so and the mice are running together, they're eating together, sleeping together. And then you see what happens to their organs and tissues. And so in this experiment, we found that old animal becomes much younger with respect to muscle regeneration, formation of new neurons in the brain, and also liver regeneration. And all of these molecules which were responsible for making animal younger were also rejuvenated. So it was not just a fluke. There was also a fundamental mechanism of how they became younger. And then young animals suffered from this connection and became older, particularly in liver and in brain. And so back in 2005, we did studies, actually we started in 2003, 2004, we did studies with all three tissues, muscle, liver, and brain. But for brain, the reviewer who, uh, in Nature, Nature reviewer who reviewed our paper was very vicious and he gave us many suggestions for additional experiments, which would have taken years. Mm. And so I now already had position at Berkeley and editors of Nature really wanted to publish these findings. So as a compromise, we just removed our brain results from the paper and we published only on muscle and liver. But we shared our findings and we showed these results to Tony Weiss-Carey from Stanford, who was at the time new assistant professor studying how inflammation induces Alzheimer's disease. So we shared it with Tony and then Tony published identical results and also extrapolated them six years later on brain. 
So fortunately, the brain data was not abandoned. But in retrospect, we could have published these findings back in 2005 as well. Mm. So then from that time on, people kind of became obsessed with these stories about vampires and that young blood right. holds the secret to, to health and youth and so forth. And it was really uh, strange to me. It was surprising that that was such a simplistic interpretation of our findings, which we did not intend our findings to be interpreted like that. And also that how much, I guess, interest it got, that it really absorbed all of the funding in the area. And as a result, there was not enough funding to do any alternative work, which in my opinion was the most important work to do. But anyways, if you want, we can explain to you why we think that it was simplistic interpretation that young blood will solve the problem. That's why I interject a, uh, yeah, a just historical correction there. It was actually, in that paper, it was actually Amy Wagers from Irv Weissman's lab who did most of the surgeries. That's right. On, on those mice. Mm. Yeah. I did plenty of surgeries, but not for that particular paper. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, so that was her contribution. So our third author on the paper is Amy Wagers who at the time was connecting two young mice together for a totally different question. Mm-hmm. And she taught us how to staple mouse skins, and also she stapled a bunch of mice for us. That was her contribution, and from then on, she continued with this stapling of mice for many other research papers, trying to see if heart becomes better, bones become better. And, and in general, the whole field kind of confirmed and extrapolated our findings that, yes, if you connect young mice with old mice, you see positive effects on a number of old tissues. And you also see inhibitory effects on a number of young tissues. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the overall conclusion. Right. But the main secret there is that mice share more than blood when you staple them. Right. So when they live together for like entire months, then old mouse now has access to young heart. So the blood pressure becomes better. Mm-hmm. And young lungs. So now you have better oxygenation of blood. So red blood cells now are more oxygenated and also you have young red blood cells going to an old animal Mm -hmm. and also you have young liver so you have much better metabolism and you have young immune systems you have much better wound clearing and less inflammation yeah so it is not you know those secret proteins in blood it is simple things like how much oxygen does your brain get sure and so that was completely overlooked and then Millions of dollars were spent on a fractionation of blood, which in our perspective could not have led to anything significant and it didn't. Mm. Uh, and also, you know, injecting small volumes of young blood into old mice or old people, which the jury is still out there. But in my opinion, based on just the basic biology knowledge, that doesn't seem likely to work. I see. And so, yeah. Okay. So that was kind of the conclusions of the parabiosis. So the summary, if I may, a young mouse and an old mouse circulations were tied together. It was not circulations. That would have been better. Mm. Their skins were, okay. were sutured, right? So nobody did vascular surgery on them. Okay. And what you found is that the older mouse all of a sudden started to appear younger and it had better oxygenation of the blood. There was a variety of different things, but it was hard to attribute what those benefits were due to. But because it was a seemingly simple solution, it stimulated a lot of other research and even a field of saying, hey, this could be a way to prevent or affect aging in people by injecting you know, young blood. So that stimulated that hypothesis. People ran with it. It was a little suspect to you. You thought there was probably other things that were taking place besides just the blood. So what do you think was going on? What was your next experiment that took it a step further to identify what really was going on? 
Right. So at the time, we also had some data that we did in we call in vitro in a petri dish, where we would take cells and grow them in culture. And usually, when you do that, you add some amount of serum to that. So that's the a liquid fraction of blood, you spin out the cells. And uh, if you grow the cells in young serum, they grow very well. If you grow them in old serum, they grow poorly. And what was interesting is if we mixed young serum and old serum together, the cells grew poorly, mm. right? So that indicated that there was something that was in the old serum that was suppressing the growth and was also dominant over whatever was in young serum. Right. So that got us thinking that what was going on in parabiosis must be more along the lines of the young animals filtering some old inhibitory stuff out of the old mouse, maybe more than it's adding young positive factors to the mix. Right. And so that got Arena thinking that, oh, so there's got to be something that circulates that's inhibitory, and what could it be? So she did a, a screen that I like to call in biblio, right? So it's not in it's, vitro or in vivo or in silico. It's sitting on the computer and going to PubMed <laughs> uh, and looking up papers and reading them. Right, in biblio. I think that uh, all the secrets of the universe are already uncovered on PubMed. Right. There are millions of papers, and if any one person understood all of them, then there would be no secrets left. Right. So that's one of my favorite things is to pursue this hypothesis by screening PubMed first. Right. That's smart. Isn't there a saying uh, an hour in the library saves a month in the lab? Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Very few people still do it, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, more funding. Get more funding. We'll have more time to sit and actually read papers instead of scrambling to rewrite and write grants. Yeah, right. But to get back to the screen, so she, she thought of, okay, what circulates could potentially increase with age. It's probably part of a gene family. So you don't find long-lived or well-regenerating mutants because they picked up a gain-of-function mutation or something in the one member of the family, right? Yeah. Right. And it's probably necessary for proper function at some dose, right? And she got a short list of molecules, and we and tested them in the lab. And then TGF-beta was, the, was one that kind of rose to the top as having a robust inhibitory effect on our cell growth in culture. And that if she blocked it in cultures with old serum, she was able to restore the growth of the cells. So that sparked a whole mm. set of years of, of investigation into transforming growth factor beta and got a bunch of publications on that. And the upshot of that was that in the mice, if they were injured, Old mouse, if you added an inhibitor of TGF-beta, and these are pharmaceuticals that are available off the shelf. Some are in clinical trials against you know, various cancers or something like that. For a short dose, short duration, you can improve the muscle regeneration dramatically. Incredible. And also, grad student in the lab, Hanadi uh, Youssef, found that if you injected that, you'd not only improve the muscle regeneration, but you'd also improve neurogenesis. Mm. In, in the, the same old animal. Right, in the same old animal. Ah, so it's not necessarily tissue-specific, but you can have an, a broad effect throughout the body. Exactly. Yeah. So then, unfortunately, that was overlooked because people were obsessing at the time about GDF11. Okay. Which later on turned out to be problematic and irreproducible. Okay. So our paper was published not in a high-impact journal, in a very reputable good journal, but not in science. And I think that because of that... Really, the benefits to people who are suffering for degenerative pathologies were limited. And again, that is only because you don't have enough funding to pursue multiple directions and see how they contrast and compare. Yeah. So everybody just jump into one direction. Right, right. GTF11, it's great. Then, oh no, sorry, it doesn't work. Right. Meanwhile, the work that was published in parallel is now 
not big news because it was published back in 2015. Right. In science, you've got to go where it's hot because that's where the funding might be. And so everybody's doing the same thing and it slows everything down. Yeah. And then if it is big hoopla and so many press releases, then private investors also tend to gravitate toward those exciting news. And oftentimes because they are exaggerated, nothing good comes out of it. Yeah. Right. So that's what like, you know, specific things. But then we were thinking about a clear experiment, kind of a proof of principle, which will once and for all discriminate between whether young blood is good or whether we need to remove old blood inhibitors. And so that's how we switched to the blood exchange, which is much more difficult to set up than parabiosis, but it is much better experimental setup to answer many questions. So in blood exchange, in fact, we do exchange only blood and there are small catheters which are inserted into mouse veins. And you can imagine mice are very little, how tiny their veins are. So you need to be very, very skilled to be able to catheterize mouse veins. And then there is a peristaltic pump that pretty much mixes the blood from young mouse with an old mouse to equilibrium, which is identical to parabiosis. So there is no loss of blood, there is no gain of blood. Mm -hmm. They are mixed okay. in exactly the same way. But that happens in one day, and then mice are not living together for one month anymore. They do not share organs. You exchange their blood, and then that's it. They are separate young mouse and old mouse. And then, very quickly, you can study what happens to the organs and tissues. So... Most surprising findings that we had from this experiment is that, yes, blood exchange without any organ sharing or adaptation does have effect on youth and aging. And the effect is almost instantaneous. So it implies completely different set of mechanisms as compared to when mice are sutured and running together. Mm. Because the effect is, you know, it's almost like it takes place for some organs in one day after blood exchange. Wow. And the most predominant effect is that we have inhibition or premature aging of young animal because now it has old blood. Mm, interesting. So the excitement with the parabiosis studies is that young blood could make an older mouse younger. But what this study showed is actually the opposite, that older blood makes a younger mouse older. Exactly. And I wouldn't no, exactly phrase yeah. it as opposite. Yes. I mean, there, there's definitely good stuff in young blood. And we'll see what happens to the studies that people are, are doing now where they're they're injecting young blood into old people and, and pursuing those types of experiments in mice. Just what this shows is that relatively, there's a bigger bang, mm. a negative bang from the old blood yeah. than there is a, a positive boost from the young blood. Or like to paraphrase what Mike said, is that if you neutralize and remove inhibitors of old blood, that by itself will be therapeutic without aiding anything young. And if you do that, then any other positive thing that you might find in young blood or otherwise will work better or actually work. Right. So the old blood is you could be adding these inhibitory factors, which Mike, I remember you saying earlier when you're doing it in vitro, when you added a mixture of the old and the young blood, it seemed like the older blood was having a greater impact because the those inhibitory factors were there, but there could be a positive impact from the younger blood being added to dilute the inhibitory factors that are present? I don't think so, because in our experiment, we pretty much removed 50% of the old blood and replaced it with 50% of the young blood. So it is a huge amount. And as you probably know, it is impossible to do or to do frequently in people because of the immune rejection and horrible side effects like lung collapse and anaphylactic shock. Right. 
because our mice are pretty much younger clones or younger twins of the older mice. They are all genetically identical. But in people, it would be impossible to do. And we removed the incredible amount of this old inhibitory blood, 50%, and we added 50% of the young blood similar to when mice were sutured. But still, we had no zero positive effects on brain. Zero. Mm. And we did have positive effects on muscle and on liver. So Mike is accurate. Okay. But this is, again, proof of principle experiment, which is not possible to directly translate to people. Yeah. We have some ideas of how that could be translated to people, how our findings could be translated. The small molecule that you mentioned that is being currently tested in some cancer trials was very interesting. So this transforming growth factor beta-1 does seem to increase with age in all body tissue, not very present when you're younger, but it's more ubiquitous in some tissues when you're older, and this is actually inhibiting those stem cells. This small molecule, however, that is available, this actually can block the receptor of TGF-beta-1, and then that'll decrease the pathway activity. So that's really exciting, because that feels like it's a much more direct approach. Even if there was some effect of diluting the blood from an older person with a younger person's blood, this seems more powerful and targeted. Yes. And so the one caution with that is that TGF-beta-1 is really important thing that we cannot simply remove. Right. If we do remove too much of it, we become very sick. Right. So you want to get it right. You got to... You want to get it right. Exactly. Yeah. And so right now, for example, we are working on these, what is called immune affinity modules or next generation blood exchange with um, our bioengineering colleagues, where you can take blood from an old person, which is now FDA approved process of blood exchange. Okay. And then you can filter out specifically excess of TGF beta 1, mm. measuring precisely what are the young levels that you need. And then we can return that rejuvenated blood back to the same person without any side effects because it is his own or her own blood. Right. Now it is not inhibitory anymore. And in fact, you know that it is could be done sustainably. There is no immune reaction. And there is no negative effects on anything. That is interesting. But that is kind of one approach, right? Because if you start injecting inhibitor of key signaling that is really needed for many cells in the body, it's really easy to get it off a little bit. And then you start developing horrible side effects. Right. But if you're actually precisely measuring, pretty much FDA-approved protocol, which could be repositioned to treat now number of degenerative pathologies, then it could be done sustainably and safely. And so that's kind of our one of our ideas for the future. That is pretty exciting. So it'd be like a dialysis situation. And now you have to just figure out how frequently and how much it needs to be removed and put back in. And then the second point is that we don't think it could be single prong or silver bullet type therapy because there are probably three to five things which we need to normalize yeah. to young levels. And those are the key things. We don't need to work on hundreds of molecules, but we need to do really well with three or five yeah. to make blood and therefore stem cell responses younger and healthier for a long time. And also do it safely, you know, because it's not simply that you have toxins and you filter out in dialysis. Those are molecules without which we cannot live. Right. They just become deregulated, yeah. either too much or too low. So you need to return them to their normal levels. Yeah. And it's possible to do. We have clinical trials under development with Professor Dobry Kiprov at San Francisco in collaborations with UC Berkeley engineers. So that's what our one of the kind of future directions, which I think actually has a hope to succeed 
and conscious to injecting blood of virgin teenagers into old people. Do you still think that some investigation into these small molecule drugs has potential or is it a little bit too risky? So the, our colleague, Professor Dobry Kimpro from San Francisco Blood Aphoresis Clinic, was doing blood exchange in people for 35 years. So he's an expert and currently practicing physician. I see. And he contacted us yeah. because of reading our papers made him interested in can this be repositioned? Mm-hmm. And repositioning is when you already have FDA-approved procedure and your clinical trials, therefore, are much more advanced. You just see if the same or slightly modified protocol can be used instead of autoimmunity, can be used to treat Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, type 2 diabetes, osteoporosis, muscle wasting, and other pathologies of aging. So we are working with him on that. And basically, we envision precision medicine approach because we do not age identically to each other, right? So even if you think of normalizing the levels of TGF-beta or another positive molecule we found that diminishes with age, which is called oxytocin, it might be different from person to person. In one person, you need to drop it down by twofold, but another person by fivefold. Yeah. So therefore, you need really precision medicine process and good sensors to measure quickly and accurately the levels of those key candidates before and after. It will be at the nature, I think, of the clinical trials provided that we raise funds, funds for that because, again, funding has been very scarce and diluted into multiple directions. We do plan to study in these clinical trials how much younger do people become? Do they become younger in their epigenetics, for example? Do they become younger in their lack of predisposition to cancer? So there is many, many parameters that we can study. How much improvement can you expect from our process or approach where we take person's blood that goes through the machine and the approved process by FDA, and then we return blood back, but in much rejuvenated state. Yeah. Is this systemic rejuvenation applied to cells and to molecules, to DNA? So that will be cool. Pretty much everything that happens to every single person as we get older. If we address some of the core mechanisms, then we can basically address everything at once. But aging itself, is there's a major lack in funding, particularly with the importance of being able to solve so many things at once, potentially. So what's the current state of funding? And what do you think needs to happen in order for more dollars to go towards this really important research? This paper cost about a half a million dollars. We got funding from Calico, and we got a little bit of funding from NIH and a few other sources. But what really nucleated that and made that happen is Aubrey de Grey. He came up with the funding to get it going, and he also found the expertise. So he knew Justin Rebo from previous work at Trucens, who had the expertise in being able to do the catheterization and getting this miniaturized peristaltic computer-controlled pump, and Justin's friend, Keith, to put all that stuff together. It certainly wouldn't have happened at that time if it wasn't for Aubrey. And his interest in not just aging, but thinking... Spreading the gospel. Yeah. And what I know, you know, on my part is that a couple of months ago, very famous scientists, including Tom Rando, Judy Campisi, myself, and others, Tony Weiskare, wrote a letter to the director of National Institutes of Health asking to provide more funding for aging research, saying that really we are underfunded, and if we were funded better, we could have combated all of the horrible, incurable, devastating pathologies of aging, such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and type 2 diabetes, at once, pretty much like penicillin combats bacterial infections, regardless of whether it is uh, tuberculosis or meningitis. And that was the nature of our petition. And unfortunately, I don't think that that is going to happen because we had similar appeal a couple of years ago and we had the whole symposium dedicated to that. 
But as a result, nothing could happen. And again, aging research, which I think is instrumental to biomedicine, is sorely underfunded. Well, getting funding from NIH is a wonderful thing, and it should happen. We also have organizations like SENS, S-E-N-S, Research Foundation, which anybody who's listening can go there and donate, and you can directly help people like the convoys do their work. So go to SENS, make a small donation, but if enough of us do that, it could actually lead to pretty meaningful results. For example, the convoys can get funding to do the next step, which could actually have a benefit within our lifetime. And that is open philanthropy. Yeah. Recent, recent foundation. Yes. And they are looking at the proposals that were not funded by NIH and they are reviewing the value of the proposal. If it's a good proposal and exciting work, they are thinking of funding it. And that was done as a model with respect to cancer research recently with very big success. So when funded independently by philanthropy, they have led to this immunotherapy against cancer, which turned out to be actually working. So Open Philanthropy wants to do the same with a broad range of scientific endeavors. And so Open Philanthropy would be another place, I think, where people could contribute and then we will have better chances to get funding. And additionally, somebody can just give a gift to UC Berkeley or Canberra Laboratory for a specific idea project. Tax deductible. Tax deductible. <laughs> but what I want also to mention is that currently at NIH or other major funding agencies, it's winner takes all. Right. So all of the kind of funding is accumulated in very limited laboratories. So you don't have this kind of, you know, help from you have more heads and you have better outcomes. You have only a couple of brains which now have millions of dollars of funding to do whatever they want to do. And we still have no cures and it doesn't seem that we are going in the right direction. So even spreading the funding around better so now more of us can contribute would be significant improvement. So we've got SENS, we've got Open Philanthropy. You can make a donation to UC Berkeley or specifically to the Convoy Lab. Exactly. And those are just some ways to continue the funding in aging, bypassing the limited ability of the NIH to reach all the labs that need to, to help the research that needs to happen. Thanks for listening and come visit us soon at humanos.me.